well, 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 welcome back. Hello there. My name is Eric Wright. I'm the host of the Disco Posse podcast, and you are listening to a conversation with Lena Joshi. Lena is fantastic. She's an incredible human, and she's also the co-founder and CEO at an amazing company called Close Factor. So they're doing some really, really slick stuff around go-to-market strategy and helping with marketing for business to business. So if you're in the startup space and you need help really connecting intelligence around sales data, they're doing some slick stuff. But the way in which the problem is being solved is actually unique and also not just unique, but novel, fundamentally different and it's proven. Okay, I feel like I'm kind of telling a commercial, but truthfully, we aren't really going to dive into close factors specifically as much as I want to know why does this stuff matter? Like, what is the human engagement problem that we have that requires us to get more intelligence into sales data? If you're going to start up and you run a sales team or a marketing team, this is must listen stuff. So enjoy it. Hope you like it. Oh, speaking of must listen, you must listen to this because your data is at risk. Wherever it is, it could be gone. Do you know where your data is? It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your data is? I don't don't know whether it's 10 o'clock where you are, but imagine it's 10 o'clock. Where's your data? Well, easy. Go to Veeam. Protect your data. Make sure your data is recoverable. It's not just about storing it somewhere. You gotta be able to recover it. Veeam has truly nailed down the cross-platform, cross-cloud, Everything you need, whether you're an SRE operating Kubernetes or whether you're in the traditional virtualization space or if you're in the public cloud, yay. Even if you got that data sitting in Office 365, if you've got it in Salesforce, vital data, it's the blood of your business. You lose it, serious problems. Why would you put that risk in front of you and your investors? It's plain and simple. Go to vee.am forward slash discoposse. That's how cool they are. They even let me put my name in the middle of it. So go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Check it out. And in the meantime, enjoy. This is Lena Joshi, the co-founder and CEO of Close Factor on the Disco Posse podcast. Hi, I'm Lena. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Close Factor, a go-to-market intelligence platform. And you are listening to the Disco Posse podcast. You've done this before. I love it. <laughs> well, Lena, thank you very much. This is a real honor because I've been lucky enough to spend a little time learning about your background, what you and the Close Factor team are doing, which is really exciting, close to to my heart because this is something that in you know technical product marketing and and what my my team at GTM Delta has been doing. There's always this very very tight relationship to true sort of metrics and digital marketing and how to be effective at taking content and putting it into play. But it's much more than just content. Obviously, like digital marketing is an entire, it's a strategic challenge. It's a tactical challenge. 
And it's also a very human challenge. And that's what I want to kind of talk about today. So Lena, if you don't mind, if you want to uh, introduce for folks that are new to you, uh, yourself, uh, and sort of give us the the quick elevator on on the close factor story. Yeah, I mean, close factor was uh, was was born out of uh, you know uh, two two things that we were observing in the market. One was, of course, there is a huge amount of data that's available about various companies and accounts, and then the second part of it is salespeople or marketing people when they are going to market with a particular product or solution they're probably not making the best use of this data to be in the context of the customer that they're talking to. And we wanted to bring those groups together uh, and we wanted to make it efficient so that, uh, you know, a salesperson who's reaching out to a company knows exactly what's going on inside the company, knows their projects and priorities, and is able to position themselves as a, uh, you know, uh, value-added uh, person that some that they that the people inside the company want to talk to uh and and for a marketing person you know the world has changed in the last uh, few years the there is a lot of tendency to just spray and pray but with close factor they can be very very targeted and meet the people where they are so if someone is interested in a particular topic they can be very personalized and talk about that specific topic with that person that was the opportunity that we saw with close factor and that's why we brought it to life well, and this is, I think, one of the most important pieces that we think about the SDR, sort of the outbound, you know, inbound marketing that becomes outbound sales, you know, like, how do you actually go and, and talk to those folks? And, you know, ideally, where does inbound marketing and outbound marketing come together too? where like understanding what's drawing them in organically, uh, what are trends that are happening around you in your sort of competitive space? And then on top of that, yeah, what are what are those people interested in, and you know, sort of profiling what's ideal for them? And we always get torn. We it's a bit of an ethical discussion, right? Is that the more we learn about how a person can be most effectively communicated with, then ultimately it drives better interactions, higher conversion sales. So that's the nice way to say it. The downside, of course, is like, oh, we're gathering a lot of information about somebody to try and you know sell them something. Both are true. Uh, it's just a matter of the angle at which you look at it. But I think this is not profiling to try and do like sell them shoes that they may have Googled about. Very, very different in the, the true ads delivery method. This is much more like AE, like account executive, SDR, so, you know, BDRs, whatever the, the something DR you call them, whatever your, your business development folks, when they're calling out that they are not calling some saying, have you heard of us? And that person goes, yeah, I've downloaded your white paper three times and I've been on two webinars. And you go, oh, like you've really wrecked your relationship if you come to them with a very generic question or, or, or answer. We don't want to be like, oh, Hello, Lena. I noticed that you're living in Colorado and uh, that you like cycling. Uh, and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know So somewhere in between those two things, uh, but it is a very human element, and this is what I think is most important. You've pro solved a problem at a system level, which is very difficult because it's very seems very human, especially to sales folks, SDRs, even marketers. We're like, no, 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 no. We we can't do this without a human, true. But the amount of human input versus the, the data-driven approach is I think this spectrum 
where we as humans may be right about what we're doing, but the data should back it and proof should be borne out in the numbers. We may continue to be right, even if born out of the numbers, but then we as humans, something we think, let's just keep doing it the way that we do it versus your approach, which is like, well, take that piece that we know is data backed. Can we automate, you know, tune, optimize that piece so that the, the very human thing that can only be done with someone going to someone's LinkedIn and double checking something and mentioning it so that they can concentrate on that piece. Cause that's the important part. It's the, the very specific one to 10% human behavior that you have to have, but the more you can drive in data and in understanding the pro the behavior, of that type of, of potential client, this is where the win is. And no one's been able to do this without 40 platforms, right? Like I've got a periodic table of people that say they can solve a problem. They don't solve this problem. They solve like, I can solve your ad problem. I can solve, you know, some other thing. I can solve your post webinar automation nurture campaigns, but I can't do that with you. Like I would end up with 40 different tools just to try and do what I believe is, you know, the most important thing. So, so I'm, I'm saying this because I'm like frustrated. Like I'm constantly voicing this frustration with, with my team, with every marketing team I talk to. And they're like, we just keep getting told that let's try this other platform. It'll do this one thing. It's not, it's not really doing much more than automating a process, but it's not changing. There's no intelligence being added. And this is, I think, one of the major, major differences with, with close factors. So the, the, the conundrum is that, you know, as much as people don't like being sold to, they do like when someone is talking to them specifically in their context. And then the other side of it is, as a salesperson or as a marketing person, you don't want to miss the opportunity to 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 add value, uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and so you you want to be very personalized, but at the same time you want to sort of insert your your message in. So it, it, it's a difficult problem. There's no question about it. And like you said, there are many tools on the market that do very small pieces of of this. Where we started was you know a few principles was. First of all, people buy from people, right? I mean, uh, in in the enterprise sales space, at least people buy from people. They want to know that the person on the other side is is real human and and understands their problems. Uh, the the person on the other side, the human, the sales human, has to make sure that they have enough number of right good prospects in the pipeline. So at the end of the day, they can make the number. But they cannot be inhuman in in talking to all of these prospects. They have to be very, very contextual, which is difficult to do. And what we do is we provide that context so that as they're shifting from one prospect to another, they they can still be in the context of the person's problems and not in their own like, hey, I just need to sell you this thing and you need to buy it from me right now. Uh, you know, like the less transactional a sale is, the better it is. Uh, and what we what we bring to the table is really the context around the buyer, the context around their priorities, their organization's priorities, other people in the organization that could influence the sale. You know, all of that context is is already researched so that the salesperson at the end of the day can be human in their interaction with 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 the buyer. So let's get to the start as the, as, as James Lipton uh, from inside the actor studio, so he says, we, we, uh, we start as always from the beginning. Close factor is 
the result of an incredible amount of knowledge, proof, and practice that you bring to this, and obviously as well with your the the with your founding team and and with your founding engineers, but ultimately, it would seem to me that this represents a problem you've faced directly for many years and finally said, enough is enough. <laughs> I've got to solve this problem. And then likely, as you walk around and speak with other fellow marketing leaders, they would say, let me know if you fix this. Same problem here. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, back when I was at Splunk, uh, uh, what what I observed, I joined them when they were very early, and we were pivoting from being a log management uh, platform to an operational intelligence platform. And what I observed was the salespeople were uh, all getting trained, including me. We were all getting trained on you know how to sell in the context of an organization's business priorities, how to align with them. Uh, so that so that you're you're walking lockstep with your champions, your buyers, your influencers, and that actually helps your deal move forward, helps Splunk add more value to every customer. And I saw this being incredibly successful. When I went on to my next few roles, I found myself, you know, doing the research part that the salespeople at Splunk were doing, like for my reps, and doing it very painstakingly, like pulling out the actual. Uh, investor presentation, finding the numbers that made a difference, and then feeding it to my reps so that they could they could understand the context in 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 which they're walking in uh, to a customer situation. I was like, this is way too painful. It requires you to comb through so much data, and everything that I was being pitched, like like you mentioned, uh, Eric, it it was. Uh, it was solving pieces of the problem. There were many people out there. They were like, hey, we are these huge databases of information. You come. You figure out what's relevant to you. Use about 50% of it may be outdated. That's your problem. You solve it. And then we're just going to walk away. And I was like, well, with the advances in machine learning, there is an opportunity being mixed, missed here to be completely curated and customized, which is why, which is one of our value propositions. We are completely customized to our customer sales place. If a rep logs in or if a marketing person logs in, they're not you know, searching around, trying to come up with the ideal customer profile, we've already figured that out for them. They already, you know, we already know to a great, great amount of uh, great level of uh, precision what their sales plays are, and they can already hit the ground running very quickly. Now, this is interesting, too, because looking at how in general we saw flow change in behaviors already occurring we had you know cookie apocalypse we got all these other things that we we learned through the you know the way that we had to adjust how data was gathered and held and that was happening at systems that are generally ad focused right like that's the biggest spot where that people really took a hit but there's a certain amount of really good adjacent information you can pull from you know some of that behavior but in general it's also What's their LinkedIn? Like, there are ways you can do that without following them around the internet, but just more Absolutely. like looking at very, very obvious spot that's much more guided towards a B2B sale. That's correct. And I think now this is the question that people would ask is, you know, with that information, what has changed and how necessary that information is today versus, I'll say, you know, 
four years ago. And the reason for uh, an obvious choice, right? So four years ago, people went to offices, they went to stores, very patterned behavior. And so when we wanted to reach out to them as an enterprise sale, or even a commercial sale that still has a very high touch, you know, initial uh, outreach, the first thing you would do was maybe even send a, is it called the lumpy package, right? Something, something to their office, right? You get a little, you know, a little bonus pack, you get a little welcome card. Well, that, that's, that's gone now, right? There's, I can't pick a person who's a, you know, VP of something or other and send them a, a you know, send them a golf club because they don't have a home address that, and they work from home 90, like people are coming back to the office more, but so we suddenly with a hundred percent remote world, everything broke all of the classic enterprise high touch experience practices for sales got really held up. And then the marketing team just, they said, no problem. Marketing will fix it. And you're like, no, 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 no. People in marketing, like, wait a second. We, we just can't just fix it. We can't just find new ways to reuse old practices. We need to rethink how we understand this person before we just try and like nudge them to the point where we know about them. We need to learn much more about that. What's important to that person. So how, how did you see that play out over the past few years? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you in that, you know, selling changed when, when people started to work from home during the pandemic and it's still not come back. I would say another big shift that happened was physical events became much less popular I, as, as a mechanism because just people were not attending conferences at the time. Uh, you, you are right in pointing out that uh, some marketing folks went completely crazy and did so much pray and pray. And it is responsible for the noise that we see in the market, right? Yeah. Where we like to, where we typically like to start is by defining someone's ICP, right? Like if you're a company and you're selling to other companies, in effect, you're a B2B business. You want to know what your ideal customer profile is, because if you don't, and you end up, you're like, okay, I'm selling to everybody that has greater than thousand employees. That's a very big universe. And <laughs> you need to define how you're going to be successful in that very big universe. You need to have segments. You need to figure out like which different, different companies operate differently, even in different sectors, different companies operate differently, depending on how technology forward they are, how, how much they are with like the latest trends in 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 cloud and mobile and all that good stuff so you need to shift your go to market to figure out like what is the right right customer profile and then sort of figure out like who falls in that profile who's outside that profile by how much and uh, it, that would you know help you as a as a company be more efficient in how you acquire customers as well as how you keep them Right, because if you acquire the wrong kind of customers, they're gonna churn. And at this in this year, I would say churn is something everybody's trying to avoid. So you want to know what what which customers are right for you, and spend all your effort in getting acquiring those customers in the most efficient manner possible. This is interesting because it really really struck me as I walked around. I was at a, a, a an AWS summit event in in DC. And whenever I walk around and, and speak with vendors that are at the floor or even just in, in discovery chats with folks uh, who are reaching out to me for work, I always ask, 
what's the greatest risk to your organization in the next six to nine months? And there's a, an obvious purpose to this question. And I don't want to be like, I'm, I'm leading towards a thing in my own choice, right? Like, so, but I generally want to talk to marketers, even talk to salespeople. The one thing that's been almost every single person, the first thing I say is pipeline. That's their biggest risk right now, because even though we, you know, we went through a rough patch as far as like, you know, the world changed, marketing changed, a lot of things changed. A lot of people still had reasonable pipeline that they were just sort of squeezing the the last mm -hmm. drops from. Mm -hmm. The problem with pipeline is that entry to the pipeline and tail end of sales cycle could be 18 months, could be 14 months, could be five months, could be six Unless you're a SaaS, well, even then it's a different thing, but like even if you're a SaaS instant, you know, sign on, instant sign up, you still have to think about what the behavior is as you move people into pipeline as well as upsell and Correct. you know, and renew. So this is a big thing. Everybody says it. And the problem they've got is that even if you go aggressively now, it's going to take a while before they realize those changes, which I think is why people get stuck in platform sprawl. Where they're like, let's just try this new thing. Well, some new plugin for LinkedIn that'll get us a bunch of information. The next thing you know, they're downloading into Excel and then exporting it to Redshift and merging it with some other data. And they're trying, some person in marketing ops is an Excel guru. And then they maybe have more information. It's really hard for them to repeat that process. They try it for three months. They don't see a lot of activity, so they stop. I feel like three months is like a test in marketing is a year. Like certain things are short, but like we don't really know the results until it maps to the sales cycle. And if you've got a nine-month sales cycle, a three-month test is not going to be effective. <laughs> I, I think we, we see this very, very often where marketing and sales are not walking lockstep with each other, right? Marketing is doing your own thing. Hey, I'm going to try out seven different things. And sales is like, this is not helping me at all <laughs> because I want to go after the accounts that look like this, that are that have the budget, that have the pain point. And the inbound that's coming in from marketing is just not meeting the criteria so you know it, it, they 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 do work differently mostly because the operating rhythms are different like you pointed out right marketing to run a cycle takes a long time uh, get real ex results from experiments take, takes a long time and for sales pipeline is everything they need to be constantly building pipeline in order to hit their numbers in order to acquire the customers at the rate that uh, that makes sense for the business and I love that you you immediately hit this thing of sales and marketing need to work in lockstep. And I I always knew that I had to, like as a marketer, I went out of my way to always work tightly with sales, to understand how they're actually interacting with, with customers and prospective customers and listening to them like, hey, what works, what doesn't work. But that's one of the big things I find with a lot of teams, like marketing has a, a set of KPIs and then sales has KPIs which result in revenue. So they're di measured differently. Even if one KPI is a little odd, you know, it doesn't really quite hit. You're getting a B on this, but hey, you just cooked a, you know, a seven-figure deal. Uh, so, okay, we'll, we'll let you go with a B on how you got it, 
we got the deal, you know? Yeah. But when we move to marketing, we talk about MQL. So we try to like really frame what is a marketing qualified lead. And then we hand it over and it ultimately becomes an SQL, a sales qualified lead. And those are two different things because sales may not see the scoring to be the same. And so I, I find people struggling with like development and operations, right? They, they speak two different languages. So how do we, how did you approach this as a, like a platform approach, knowing that you have to satisfy what a salesperson would view as qualification versus a marketing person in their KPIs? That's a great question. And I, I'll draw on my experience as a marketer in, in my previous lives as well, is, is you want to you wanna define audiences for within the platform that are for marketing and for sales, and then a combined audience for both marketing and sales. I'll tell you where the combined audience makes sense and where the, where the different audiences make different senses. The combined audience makes sense when you're doing a good amount of outbound and you want marketing to warm up these people with some, some level of your brand positioning, brand awareness, what is the high level pain point that you solve before your reps make a call, right? So that they're not going, you're who? Uh, but instead, they they've seen your they've seen your ad, they've seen your name somewhere, and they know that you're you're a good company, and you need to talk to them. Now, where the marketing audience still makes sense is when you have, uh, you know, for certain deal sizes, you're you're gonna have a committee of buyers, right? You're not going to be always selling to just one person, and that person gets to sign up from the CFO. I think that those were days of the past. <laughs> so yeah. where, where marketing plays a very important role is in making that surround sound possible with like large numbers of influencers of the deal, so to speak. So what we call a buying committee, people who are, who are not directly responsible for signing the contract or you know for the budget, but have a say because their life is going to be affected by your product. And marketing plays a big role in making sure that that message gets out to those people with the right understanding of their context, right? Yeah. And then for salespeople, there's a, uh, there's a different set of information, different set of audience that needs to be available so that they just understand what they're walking into, into the account, right? Is there a competitor in there? Or is there someone who used my product at a previous company in there that I can use as a champion? So these are this is almost like the audiences, but at a micro level, because this is at the account level, it's going to be helpful for the salesperson to understand the context of the account. It's not going to be helpful from like a marketing perspective. It's not the combined audience, but these are things that the salesperson can utilize in the deal to make sure that they they are positioning the product effectively with the customer. The thing about awareness and, as you said, we have to look at it at an account level, not a uh, a personal level. And I've seen this all the time where even marketing ops, we have difficulty scoring because you could score, we could have an MQL, but that's a, that's a contact, not the company. So the company itself may not really be an MQL. You got to really, somebody went to three webinars. That's because they're actually looking to get a new job and they're interested in what you're, what this person's talking about for self-education. So they may look mm -hmm. like a, like a hundred out of a hundred, like they're 150 out of a hundred on MQLs. Cause they've gone to three webinars, 50 points a piece. All right, great. And it gets to sales and they're like, I talked to this person and they're a, they're a junior admin, you know, and we're selling a, a, a $1 million product. 
Yeah. Like yeah. if we they're selling to a CIO, as you said, you know, versus, but that that technical person is either the champion or the blocker. You know, a sea of technical people are champions or blockers. And the executive buyer, the EB, as we like to uh, say in, you know, as I've learned, I now I officially speak sales parlance because I'm a <laughs> having to do this as a founder and the chief revenue officer, I guess, in a way. But you, they have to be familiar, and then they're going to say, "Hey, you know, Joanne in uh, security engineering, I need you to check out this company and see if they're legit." Correct. And then Jane will have maybe gone to a webinar. So there's like a certain amount of awareness. And that's the thing is Jeb Blunt, uh, B-L-O-U-N-T, very, uh, very good read for especially folks in marketing and sales uh, as a group a book called Fanatical Prospecting. And he talks about the, the data-backed research on things like and if you have no familiar with the brand and it's cold and they're not in the buying window. So just like to give them interest, it takes 20 to 50 touches before mm-hmm. you're able to effectively move them into pipeline. Then, and then, you know, below that it's, I figure what the numbers are through that scale, but it's like the lowest, even if they're very familiar with you and they're in the buying window, it's still one to three points of contact to get them to the point where they're converting. And that's like, how do you track that? And also, you know, again, do it in a way that's using the right way to engage these people, not just more, you know, spray and pray engagement. The tracking, the tracking is hard. Uh, You have to do it at every step. There are no magic bullets other than, you know, and there are a bunch of tools on the market that will help you sort of track the touches and track, you know, how many times they saw the ad and things like that. Lots of lots of measurement platforms. I think the important malaise that you're pointing out is the fact that now everyone in sales and marketing has these power tools available to them and they're going crazy with the power tools and and just blasting the messages out there. And uh, it, it makes the world a noisy place. It's probably better if you if you dial down the dial down the noise and be contextual be hyper personalized like you've been saying from the very beginning eric it it not only reduces the noise it also makes your prospects more likely to respond but uh, i feel like we've we've jumped we've jumped the shark on that one (laughs) yeah well and and so this is why we we're i think we're going to move back we're getting a lot more in-person engagements we're going to get a lot more ways in which people are interacting with these companies through direct you know in-person events and and then traditional digital marketing so then you know how do we make sure that as yes, sales folks and marketing folks that we really tighten down that process of like because in the end we always say give me give me leads like no nobody really wants leads what they want is pipeline. Pipeline is very different. I can give you 25,000 impressions on an ad. Doesn't mean anyone clicked it. Doesn't mean that someone actually bought something. I can give you 2,000 leads. You could buy them off of some you know, lead, lead farm. It does not mean that you have any pipeline opportunity out of that. So how, when do people as marketers and salespeople, like when do you tell them like, what's, 
what what makes something go to pipeline and what makes it move through pipeline? The answer may sound simplistic, but it is if the company is in your ideal customer profile, right? And you need to be crisp about the definition of this ideal customer profile. And yes, the definition will change over time. But for a company that's that's like, okay, you know, I'm just starting out and I don't know what my ideal customer profile is. My advice at the moment is not very helpful. But for a company that's somewhat established, like you have a few hundred customers, you you need to hone in on what is that ideal customer profile because this is your best way to qualify the leads and impressions from uh, into pipeline, actual pipeline that will eventually convert. You know, like that 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 I see is 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 critical. If you know what your ideal customer profile and you may have an ideal customer profile by segment even, right? At the, the strategic account level, the really giant companies, we work with XYZ type of company. When, when you have companies that are 5,000, 10,000 employees, but they have these characteristics and they could be their cloud forward. They have a small size security team, not very mature, uh, you know, DevOps culture. That's great for us. Okay. That that already tells you something when a prospect comes in from that type of company and they belong to one of your bio persona titles, that already tells you this is good pipeline, right? And now yeah. if they don't convert, you're doing something wrong in your sales process. Right. Well, I like that's and that is the very that's the part of the problem that nothing can fix other than how you are just directly engaging, and that could be a a, a rep challenge in the way that they're they're doing their pitch. It could be. You know, there's a lot of matches and mismatches that can occur at that layer, but you've gone as far as you can with the data to get to the point where no data can help you other than there's a lot of anecdotal information you can pull from that. But it's it's very difficult to be very data-driven at that layer because now it is like, you know, I, I could say that, yeah, you know, Lena spoke with, you know, company X and she said, doesn't look like it's a, it's going to be an opportunity for us. And then you think, oh, that's odd because we were just talking to them and they were really happy. And then we find out that, you know, you know, Lena didn't really have a good relationship with them or or whatever. They didn't do good discovery, didn't find if right. there's a pain, didn't find out if there's a budget, and then we're surprised later on that <laughs> that the that the opportunity didn't convert. Yeah, no, all of those things. So I think that's why I more and more people they get it. And like this is why I'm really excited by what you're doing, because like everybody I talk to. Like I said, it's not leads. I mean, what's your problem? No one says leads. They all say pipeline. So what is, how do you really generate qualified pipeline? And again, that's the big thing. It's like, even if you, even if you say, forget leads, I can get you pipeline, but it's going to be wishy-washy titles or profiles that aren't necessarily matching. Then you mentioned something before. It's tough when you're you know below a certain threshold to really understand how to tightly profile your ideal customer. What do people do when they're in those earlier phases? So they found product market fit. They've got, let's say, 20 customers. They're they're now to the point where they've got a fairly repeatable. They believe they understand the way they're telling the story. The problem statement is working. People are obviously, they're buying. They're probably renewing. But they really haven't got enough data maybe to say that, here's the ideal profile. But how do we get to that layer like what what can you know what is close factor do maybe necessarily or even just in general what have you found to be a good practice 
to help people from that 20 to 100 where you really like you're you've got motion now yeah uh for this for this 20 to 100 phase i i won't be i won't lie it it is a difficult phase and the the answer that comes to mind is that you have to have a few hypotheses you have to look at the 20 customers be clear about how you acquired them uh what the pain points were for those customers when you acquired them like what were the circumstances um in under which they they purchased your product and and can, do you have enough of a universe of companies that fit that criteria right for example if um if uh, if i say hey you know everybody that's doing xamarin development uh and has a you know not great size security team is going to need my product if right. that's my hypothesis i want to make sure that there are enough companies in that bucket of how i've defined my ideal customer profile that even it even makes sense to test that hypothesis uh, hypothesis and you can you can then you know carve down that niche and figure out like is is this the right and you can try a, a few ways to acquire customers from that segment and see is this the right segment you know is this the right way or is is this the right segment for us or not um we, and you can have multiple hypotheses like that you have to be regimented about testing these hypotheses you know you can't say i'm going to run seven tests all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> but you know maybe you will run three tests like uh, hypotheses one is this kind of company is, is hypothesis this other kind of company uh sometimes and it, by the way and there are just some rules that have been around for a very long time which is you know companies that are very large they just take a long time to buy so right. if you're going after that strategic segment you just have to be accepting of the fact that it will be a nine month sales cycle just to get past procurement you know uh, so if you're running that kind of experiment it's going to be very expensive just just keep that in mind a set of lessons that i've i learned uh i'm learning daily <laughs> yeah, yeah from everybody saying yeah we're ready to go to actually transacting can be an unfortunate amount of time spent uh, in in traversing lots of procurement and legal and and, and all sorts of excitement there so Definitely yeah. something I, I know well. This is why and I also selfishly asked the question of the 20 to, to 100. I'm like, I'm right in that range. I need to figure out, you know, are we doing the right things? And and that's actually you know, sort of what connected us of, you know, are we at the point where we can really generate value from close factor? And the best thing that you did was to give us this, this lesson of like, you will be ready, but right now that maybe you need to sort of like make sure that you know in market you know is working like whatever you were doing is working in market and then now we can use that profile to drive better intelligence about the next prospect and so my favorite thing you know is a is a founder you know or a seller who says we got a great tool you guys are doing fantastic we probably don't match right now but when you're ready, this is the problem we solve and you're going to get there. Uh, so, you know, just like setting the stage of this is what you need to watch out for. And this is probably where you're going to be the right spot to get the most value. You know, you weren't interested in just like, you know, getting a customer, just like the way the, the platform is like getting the customer is not the win. Getting the customer is really solving getting a customer them problem value. You, and you delighting them and getting value is... <laughs> You can get a lot of initial deals that never renew, and then people would look and they say, "It's that's not a pipeline problem." Like, well, 
technically it is because pipeline should include upsell <laughs> and renewal. I, I think that that the way you said it was just music to my ears. I completely agree that it's not you you shouldn't be in it for the short term just to get the next deal. You should be in it for the value to the customer. I think that that's what motivates our team. And uh, and uh, and the measure of value is also important. Like you need to prove that without you, that customer would not have scaled as fast, would not have got, gotten the, their customers as fast, pipeline as fast. Like those are all all things that are near and dear to our heart. Well, if I look at the segments that I find in, at least in technology companies, because that's been sort of my focus, and and you know, looking at your your customer list, you've got a, a a beautiful pedigreed list of folks that are that are in your your customer stories but it's funny i know them all well too and you know some i've done done consulting work and i've got you know friends and folks that that work at them so i love seeing these names so technical products and technical companies very different in the way that they sell we may have an enterprise sales motion but it's it's so different in understanding the user like that technical champion behavior. So how do you how did you reconcile what would look like very diverse profiles that will lead to an account success? Um at some at some level they were they were pretty similar I will say. Uh and even across the diverse range of companies we kind of established a sweet spot in um DevOps, software infrastructure and tooling, uh, cybersecurity, data and analytics, like companies that fall in those domains just have a certain set of problems in scaling their sales team and scaling their pipeline that we could repeatedly solve. And uh, and that that's what we used as the patterns to guide our, our, our customer acquisition as well. If you look at what the market opportunity is ahead right now you know it's a it's a i'll say it's a challenging economic time of course is you know the time that we're you know recording and publishing this it's the it's near the middle of 2023 we're seeing that i think the capital is available but it's just not moving at the pace that it used to and it's not easy to get access to the capital uh but it's it's starting to unlock, but it's also very tentative. Like we could have a couple of events could occur, you know, in the world, and then suddenly freeze that movement of capital again, which is which is risky. So, what do you see right now, even in your growth journey, as an interesting set of challenges, but opportunities that are ahead in the next six to nine months? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'll say that. We are seeing that a lot of companies that used to be very opportunistic about, you know, where to place their bets are now pulling back and being very, very specific about efficient growth. So we think, you know, this is maybe one or two more quarters of this focus on restructuring for this efficient growth. How do we make sure that we're we're meeting the new pace of this market? But then we are back to that challenge of like, okay, now we understand that the dynamics are different, but we still need the pipeline to hit the new dynamics. You know, it's still it's still going to be there. That that question is there. The second the second thing that we come across and have come across recently is that we have customers. We have been able to retain the customers, but we don't exactly know what makes them special can you help us figure that out and for the right right cohort of customers we can like we can ingest ingest their 
you know, close more opportunities and figure out like which which of the things about the customers make them special that they can then double down on and use to repeatably acquire new customers. So those are sort of the two opportunities we see for ourselves. And that's what we're seeing in the market. So how do you at the sort of technical level solve some of these challenges? Because I there's a pretty clear differentiation versus other, you know, point solution tools that I've looked in the market. So like some, like I said, will solve, you know, org structure. Some will solve, you know, uh, adding, you know, social, uh, other social graph uh, stuff there. But each of them tries to be individually good at one thing, but then you, it's still, it's a me problem now that I have to glue all this stuff together. And you've, you've created this beautiful representation of a lot, but that's uh there's there's secrets i'm not gonna ask you for the secrets but i definitely will will talk about how you chose to technically uh take on this challenge no this is a great question i i i i don't have any magic answers for you other than i think we have the right team that has worked with extremely large data sets and has worked on you know user level problems so the uh, technically speaking the problem we're trying to solve is that a user, let's say it's a sales user or a marketing user, is going to multiple places to pull out different pieces of information and, and then try to build a workflow out of that. And what we've done is we've simply sucked in the information from all the places that the salespeople rely on, put it all together in one place and fit into their workflow for outbound. So that I think that helps us. And the reason I bring up the team on this is this needs people with a very diverse set of expertise in managing really huge amounts of data are still able to manage that data through very opinionated workflows to deliver results quickly. This is also a talent. And then a good amount of machine learning expertise that tells you like, where is it appropriate to deploy the latest machine learning algorithm versus where can we just use rules to simply make the life use easy for for the user so those are sort of the three three sets of skills that i think our team brings together very beautifully uh, that helps us deliver sort of what you said like data from different places uh, put together in a workflow that meets the needs of the the sales user or the marketing user so when you chose, you know, the founding team and founding engineers, it's always that interesting like that. The first 10 hires uh, will be responsible for the next 100 hires is a, a way that I heard it described very, very well by uh, Diane Green uh, from VMware. Uh, it was an, she, I think it was an interview she had with Tim Ferriss. It was a really uh, fantastic discussion. And looking at that, what is the, you talked about the talent, like you said, people that understand how to solve a problem. So you have system thinkers, data enthusiasts. How much do they need to know about the the actual familiar business problem versus like I could find a data scientist, but they may not necessarily know my business. So how do you how do you choose people when you have you found your niche, you found your product, your market fit that you were aiming for? So that's always the challenge of, do I hire generalists? Do I hire specialists? Uh, so many ways it could go. Uh, it, it's a great question. In the early days of, of hiring for a startup, I will say that a lot of it is driven by, are you excited by the problem we are solving here? 
Yeah. And because at the end of the day, like, you know, in order to be in it for the long run, you have to love the problem you're trying to solve. And you have to be confident that you're, that it is solvable and it is so, and you know, like kind of need to have a map in your head of how you're going to solve it. When, when we were doing the initial hires, even now, when we're hiring, that's what we look for. Like, do you like, do you love the problem that we're solving? Uh, and do you feel like it, it's solvable in in a in a way that uh, that makes sense? It's such an interesting thing to try and find from somebody, and it's a I've talked with a lot of founders before on this idea of it's a it's a bi directional faith exercise when you're doing early hires because the person you're hiring has to believe that you as a team and as a platform and as a you know a financial instrument are going to be available uh, in you know, over the course of three to five years as their as their shares or even just the idea of a of a good employment contract are you know are put in front of them and then the other side is like yeah you're you're betting your vision as it's being parlayed into a product on a set of people that you have to make sure that they firmly believe the vision they believe in your passion but this is an interesting thing is nobody will ever care as much about the problem as you will as a you know as a founder co-founder as part of that initial team how do you how do you reconcile that like so if you ever had that point where you're like okay this team is great but it's, not, it's like you have to kind of keep coaching sort of keep driving like how do you maintain your passion to get through those first I, large customers <laughs> i think i think i disagree with you on that one i think i think uh, you know people join startups for a variety of different reasons uh, one of which is you know they care about the problem you're trying to solve the second is they also want to make an impact right they don't want to be in some big corporate office right sipping coffee i don't know why but <laughs> you know, and, and leading a boring life when they could have a much more exciting time trying to figure out how to solve hairy problems for the user. Um, I feel like the startup people are different in that sense, right? They've they've already seen like the corporate life. It doesn't move them. It doesn't move at their pace. Uh, you have to deal with a ton of organizational politics. I won't. I won't lie. Right. Yeah. Uh, in a startup, things move faster. You're much, much more closely attached to the user. You see the impact that you have on the life of that user. And the people in the startup are usually very motivated by these things. Very. It's like I guess, and it it really makes sense that we describe it. It's much more self-selection. I guess we the people that are likely to apply have probably already sort of pipelined themselves. You know, they've niched themselves down to like, I get what they're doing. I get this is a small company, but I'm ready to take on a challenge. And so, yeah, most people are not just applying to every job necessarily, or if they are, they're still passionate about technology. They're passionate about a thing. They're just looking for a place in which they can put that passion into, into their work. Yeah, we we spend so much time at work and, and we do as a startup, we do. If you're not having fun, you, you probably made the wrong choice. You know what I mean? Like like you said, you self-selected into the wrong thing. Uh you 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 should definitely join startups only if you're in it to one, you know, 
you you want to solve the problem two you want to make an impact on the person whose problem you're solving uh, and you see yourself as you know like this hard, difficult problem solver doing it in a unique way uh, and looking at that as your measure of impact yeah the a great phrase that I actually read this morning from my friend uh, and former colleague as well as a uh, podcast sponsors it turns out my friend uh, JR from shift group uh, he says if you want to spend money without if you want to buy things without looking at your bank accounts then you need to work without looking at the clock and it's nice, uh, nice. it was a, such a beautiful way to describe that of like if you if you believe that life yeah, home life begins at 501 and we'll go until 8.59 the next morning, you're likely going to have to, other things in your life will behave differently relative to that choice. And it's such a neat thing. It's not even a, you know, grind or die, Gary Vaynerchuk kind of crazy, super motivation, 10X, you know, type of performance thing. It's more just, there are trade-offs that are going to be made. And this, if you think like this, then you're likely also think like this. Which I think goes also to well, like why you've been so good at what you've done with the outcomes you generate with close factor, because you've taken that understanding and productized it, but with such a fundamental like focus on qualified pipeline. It's like we there's a thousand things that'll get you a list, but that list is meaningless. So I, I love that you've just You've solved the, it's the gold rat principle, right? You've solved the most important thing that's between us and flow. In this case, it's deal flow. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to put it. Great way to put it, Eric. One thing that's really interesting to me as well is stuff that we do outside of work. So you're part of an organization called Nathry or hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. And I, I, I was really excited by their mission. And obviously you, you're you heavily involved in that. I, tell us about that. Cause that's definitely a group that I think a lot of folks would be interested in, in learning about and potentially participating with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Natri is a Southeast Asian women's group and, uh, and it has this, it's a group of really talented women that have, uh, that have made their mark in in various various uh, various ways. Um, I will say that uh, one of the reasons I joined Netri was because I felt like I found my tribe, and uh, a little bit of a, an explanation there. I will say when I first came to Silicon Valley, when I first joined the first few companies that I worked at, very often I was only woman in the room, and the only Southeast Asian woman by extension. Right. And there weren't many of me, uh, you know, around. Um, uh, for example, there was a VM world that I went to that had maybe twenty thousand people, uh, and maybe a thousand women max, something like that. Right. It was it was a ridiculous ratio. Uh, so uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm passionate about uh, Natri. I feel like uh, Southeast Asian women have already made some kind of mark in Silicon Valley and uh, and uh, I I, I felt like I found my tribe like I don't have to worry about like who else is in the room they all like me uh, and uh, um, they are also an investor in uh, Native Futures Fund is an investor in Close Factor. Uh, as, oh right you know, yeah, that's right now the connections are coming together that's it. and I think that's such a fantastic thing is that 
you know, again, folks that will understand your, your way of, of how you define leadership, you get that, that understanding that we're betting on people because in the end, right. As, especially as an investor, they're betting on a team as much as they are, you know, the TAM and the technology is the, my, we hear about the three T's, right. So the TAM is always some, you know, exciting number that has a big up and to the right. So it, it, it makes it look like there is value. Obviously there's research and data behind it, but you know, when we say $4.1 trillion TAM, it's, it's a, we just kind of picked a big number, <laughs> but when you look at how you approach this, I think there's a really strong cultural bond that can occur by folks that say, Hey, you know, we've, we've grown up this way. We've learned this way. We've been educated this way. We've been successful in business in this way. Can we take these practices that we maybe, maybe sort of culture aligned or culture centric or, you know, culture adjacent that maybe not necessarily understood or present in, you know, uh, traditional, it's to me like a, a, and your North European, you know, uh, founders or, you know, Australian founders, whatever there's, we can learn lessons from each other that might've been very localized, but now with globalization, this is the chance to not just make everything a wash, but take the best of each culture, the best of each nation, the best of each community and let it bubble to the top and then diffuse that into like just the, the most important nuggets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're saying it very well, Eric. Better than I would have said it. <laughs> That's my uh, my my marketing life comes out uh, in in how we do these things. But uh, so here's the the question they often ask: What's you've been through? You've got an incredible career. Pre close factor, anybody would there's a, there should be awards beside your name for many of the things you've done already. You've got uh, you've proven yourself. And you're proving it with close factor in the adoption you're getting and, and the results and the, the customer stories. But especially as a founder, what's a, a lesson that you could offer other founders or other marketers of what's scary, but surpassable? That's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the lesson, uh, so, and just as background, with Close Factor, we did an angel round, we did a, a seed round, and then we did a series A round. And uh, the scary part, I would say, is with each with each round, uh, with each measure of progress, number of customers added, etc., the team changes, the company right. changes. You got to lean into it and embrace the change. It means that you personally have to change also. The way you operated when you were a five-person team is going to be different from how you operated as a 15-person team. It's going to be different how you operate as a 30-person team. And you just have to know that it's you can't just keep doing what you've been doing in the previous stages. You have you have to change, grow, learn as a founder as well. So it could be scary. Like Lots of times people are like, am I up to the task? Like, or is it less fun that it, <laughs> it's not big, stop thinking all that and just lean into it. It's going to change. Uh, change is only constant. Just accept it. Yeah. When it's even, everyone's while somebody will ask me, they're like, you know, what, what's your, what was the reason you chose to, to, you know, 
go out on your own and and work with you know a, a co-founder and, and build a company and they said it was because you wanted to be your own boss and that's always the thing we always hear is that sort of classic phrase is be your own boss and i said if you're starting a company because you want to be your own boss what you really should be thinking about is that you want to be 100 responsible for the outcome if you wanted to be a boss entrepreneurship is not likely the strategy <laughs> to get mm-hmm. to being yeah. a boss Agreed. you may belong in a hierarchical traditional corporate culture more so you know not that there couldn't be more you know maybe different than the than a old you know old school you know brick and mortar you know 180 year old company but it's like it's not about being a boss it's not about having a bunch of people underneath you or you know the most humble founders create the most beautiful teams because they are often surprised by the size of the people that are with them in their flock as you grow the company. And you yeah. get to look out at a company event every year and you're like, there were, we, we could have gotten a table at, you know, uh, a small pub and we could have had our first board meeting and employee meeting, you know, and now here we are, we're, you know, in a, in a room that has 250 chairs and you know next thing you know you're in three rooms combined it's like you may have people that you technically are their boss but it's a very different approach to it i find agree completely agree have you had something that was a very difficult lesson i'll say it was the easy way the best way to ask this question what's the most difficult thing you faced that you're thankful for? This is a good question. I mean, there are so many difficult things that you face that you're thankful for. The From the very first customers that tell you, you know, like, hey, this thing not right for me, or I already have that other thing that's going to solve my problem. Because that forces you, those types of no's force you to really figure out what it is that you're offering uh, that's unique. Uh, every every hurdle that you face, actually, every time you fall down, you learn why you fell down, and then you have a way to pick pick yourself up. If you didn't have that, and you know, you would go happily marching along in your own little bubble and not get anywhere. So I feel like they're all they're all difficult lessons, especially when they come at times when you have imagined the future differently. Anything you know, anything that creates that cognitive dissonance is a difficult lesson, but every one of them is actually a blessing in disguise. Every single one of them. As we look at the shift in, I'll say marketing language too, as we, we hear PLG is sort of the, 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 the buzzword of the last, you know, particularly 18 months, you know, before that it was all about UX, you know, like, which effectively they all become the same thing of like, how do you make a more usable valuable, effective solution for somebody that is easy to consume, easy to integrate deeply within the organization, easy to recognize and and attach a value to it, and then also creates delight. And this is the challenge where a lot of times when you're marketing something, you don't think about the product, you think about the words. When you think about as an engineer, you don't think about the words, you think about the functionality. When you're a product manager, you're thinking about a lot of different things, but closer to product. And then because you have a diverse background and you did you know, product development, product management, 
product marketing and leading digital marketing teams, that diversity of your experiences, I think, would probably influence how you created the, the company, you know, and, and the approach. So when you hear product-led growth, what does that mean to you? And how does close factor map to what, you know, maybe somebody would call, you know, PLG or, or, you know, whatever the, the right way is to, to create and grow that market? I mean, product-led growth can mean so many different things. For us, it means that when our users are delighted by us and they move to different companies and they pull us in, that's product-led growth for us, you know? Right. Uh, and uh, and in a world of product-led growth, uh, companies where we add value is very often or sometimes these product-led growth companies can get very focused on what product usage they're seeing and using that metric as an upsell, completely missing the organizational context that exists outside their product that could be right. causing some things as well. So where we play a role is where we pull in your your internal data about product usage and combine it with the external data about the organization, their business priorities, their context, so that you can see both of them side by side and you can pull out the patterns, like some kind of customers we acquired where PLGs are better for us than others for XYZ reasons. So I think this, this is such a perfect wrap to exactly what we started with. I'd say the theme is that technology and human experience, a very artisanal, bespoke you know, thing, need to merge together. But the more you can take true lived experience and productize it, and understand what matters to the consumer of that product. So you're, you've created a platform which is aimed at sales and marketing teams and f to create qualified pipeline. And that is done by strong product usability. Obviously, you know, we're seeing great adoption. You're seeing, you know, renewal behaviors that are fantastic. You're seeing passionate customers that are, it's coming out in the customer stories. But then being able to say, like, these are the things that are very human in what we do. And that means that you're not going to just be like, all right, just keep building features. And then, you know, it'll it'll go away. You have to continue learning and continue feeding that that machine. So this is, I believe you have landed in the perfect things. Two things excite me the most, two-sided marketplaces and artisanal processes that get systematized. And it's the thing that people really struggle with. They just think like, oh, let's stop at the automation or let's make it all, you know, white glove bespoke experience. And I, that, I, that neither of those proved to be successful. And I think you are, I guess the best way I can describe it is I'm, I'm, I'm team close factor. I'm really excited by the way you've solved the problem, which I think for folks that listen to this, they got to know. The, the abstraction is important. The approach is important. There's obviously proving it, doing it, like your execution is proving itself. Uh, and congratulations on that. Yeah, it's, it's well-deserved, first of all, and, and it's being borne out by how people are describing you, how they work with you and your team. Thank you so much, Eric. I mean, this, this was a complete pleasure for me as well. And I learned a few things I have to say from you. So I'm looking forward definitely to, uh, you know, getting to the point where I am a close factor customer because I've got 
a, a, a larger market segment I'm tapping and a, and a, a more tight uh, understanding of where that profile is going to be more meaningful as I grow my sales team. So I uh, we'll prepare Mark the day. I've had a surprising amount of podcast guests who I've become clients of. Uh, so it's pretty exciting to see when that comes through. I would be it would be an honor to press the 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 join now, you know, uh, and and become a part of your customer community because I, I I love the way you're you're solving the problem. For folks that do want to connect with you, you know, what's the best way to do that? And of course, we'll have links as well to Close Factor and and you know to your LinkedIn and and where people can connect, and also to uh, to the the Nathry uh, organization. So, folks, if they want to want to do get involved with that, it's a it's a fantastic uh, organization. Yeah, I'm I'm L E E N A at CloseFactor.com. Uh, and uh, and you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, my name is Lena Joshi. Again, two E's in the Lena, and uh, I look forward to meeting all of your uh, listeners, Eric. There you go, Lena. Thank you very much. And yeah, for folks that are listening, yeah, go check out Close Factor. is definitely uh, worth a look. It would not even be the right way to describe it. It's a must must view. Uh, anybody that's in in anything at all in in technology sales in particular, uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't take a demo and understand where the where the map of the solution is to the problem that people are experiencing and as we're heading into event season this is the time when you want to have this intelligence going into it and through it you don't want to wait until you've got a bunch of leads and then see if you can suss them out like uh, so there you go folks get in sign up become a customer and you tell them that tell them that old disco posse sent you <laughs> but, you know thank you very much it's been a real pleasure thank you Eric. Okay, I'm just gonna stop my recording here. Let me see as well. I've got this fun that the um, my I use a a little mini monitor, but then it it suddenly reorganized my view, and I'm trying to move my mouse and I can't get to the monitor. <laughs> but that was very good. Thank you very much. I I, I had a blast. I hope that was enjoyable for you. It totally and, was. Uh, yeah, this is this is pretty cool. Sorry. Not, Thank you again, Eric. Is it okay if I drop off? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. We are finished up. Thank you very much. Uh, and then I'll let you know when it publishes. And uh, looking forward, yeah, we'll chat more and we'll figure out. I've got a few folks that I want to introduce you to as well uh, in okay. the startup ecosystem. So I'll definitely- Appreciate it. Yeah, we'll, thank you. Uh, we'll hopefully send some direct referrals your way uh, for, yeah, I say referral, just like people that should talk to you. Uh, it's not a referral. I don't expect nothing more than you to just delight them. That's all I care about, so- Thank you. Thank Good you. Thanks, Lena. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye.